I think to get very authentic, very emotional pictures, you really have to be in that emotion. So when I take these pictures, I'm not the photographer standing next to the scene, looking at it with the outside view. I'm completely emerged into it. I have the same feelings, the same emotions. I feel the same exhaustion. I do the same thing and at the same time I, I take these pictures. So that's something I love. This photography podcast is brought to you by Frames, quarterly printed photography magazine. Here is your today's host, W. Scott Olsen, with another fascinating conversation. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to another podcast from Frames Magazine. My name is Scott Olson, and today, folks, today we are in more or less going to go mountaineering. We're going over to Switzerland. We're going to the Alps, and we're going to talk about the very best way to photograph that kind of landscape and the issues and the promises and the problems that come with it. We're talking with Caroline Fink. Caroline is a um, director of photography and digital storytelling at the, at the is it pronounced the maze caroline or the uh, the maz we call it maz okay, at the maz the, the photo journal the journalism school in lucerne in switzerland she's a leica consultant she teaches at the leica academy if you look at her list of exhibitions if you look at her list of publications and you try to read them all you will be involved for a very long time she is a filmmaker she is an author and her work is got or has a kind of vibrancy and a kind of presence that i find personally just absolutely thrilling. I feel like I'm going to fall in to just every single image that I see. Caroline, welcome to the Frames Podcast. How are you today? Hi, Scott. It's so nice to be on your podcast. And thank you so much for this introduction. I'm blushing. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, 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 it is well. My Lord, your work has got a presence to it. A, 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 not only a compositional presence, but you know, a technical presence as well. Uh, and, and we're going to get into that in a second. But you, you have a real dedication to the mountains. Everything that I've read about you, you, you talk about the uh, the personal, uh, not only attraction, but affection and dedication you have to the mountains and especially the Alps. T- tell me about your relationship with landscape, t- t- even before you get to photography or filmmaking. Tell me how the land influences who you are. Well, that's a big question. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> of course, it started very early. Growing up in Switzerland, I had mm-hmm. the very kind of traditional growing up. I, I grew up in the flatlands, but still the mountains are very close. And it's very traditional that with your family, or in my case, with my grandparents, I went hiking when I was kind of two or three years old. And then I learned skiing and then we went to mountain vacation And that's how it all started, basically. But then when I was a teenager, I thought this was all horrible. (laughs) (laughs) Like most teenagers. But then I was about 20 years old when I started my studies at university. I somehow rediscovered the mountains. And uh, ironically, this happened in Nepal. 
And it was the first time I saw the Himalayas. I remember this one night when I was standing outside and there were these 8,000 meter peaks in moonlight. And I thought, I want to climb mountains. <laughs> so now but I you, you, you never had that feeling in Switzerland? Not before, no. Because I think I was too used to, to the view and too uh -huh. used to it. So it was just normal, something very normal. I didn't even realize that there were beautiful, majestic mountains where I live. So I had to go far away to realize it. And then when I came back, I started mountaineering. And um, I would say this first night was the first sunrise I saw very early morning climbing with a mountain guide friend on mm -hmm. a ridge above 4,000 meters. That was it. It was, we call it the virus. <laughs> <laughs> but um i had the mountain virus and it seriously it felt like falling in love it felt mm -hmm. like wow that's that's what i want to do that's where my place is and that's how it started <laughs> i i know that feeling very well do, do you think it, it's a an attraction to a kind of personal accomplishment or do you think it, it's that kind of endless being surprised you know every five steps it seems like you're presented with another view and something you didn't expect you know w what about the virus caught you yes um it's this is a question that i've been thinking about for the past 25 years <laughs> <laughs> about time you came up with it <laughs> there are many answers to it and uh -huh. i think mountaineering is is a perfect mix of getting very involved with very archaic very beautiful landscapes which for me are very important i often also had the feeling that when i was in a in a world that's far away from the man-made i had a certain connection to nature and to something mm -hmm. universal that i didn't feel in civilization so this was one thing but then of course uh, there's also this feeling of, of yes, you can, and this feeling of this thing looks impossible, and then you accomplish something which is a very beautiful feeling and which probably gives you a lot of dopamine without knowing. <laughs> yeah. So for me, it's, it's a whole mix of landscape, of getting in touch with earth, of getting in touch with myself, and also accomplishing something, but also very beautiful friendships that have in, e evolved because you cannot go mountaineering on your own. Um, mm -hmm. You have very strong, we, we call it Kameradschaft, like comradeship right. or something, which is, is something very beautiful and some, something very profound. You know, you, you've, you've used the word beautiful about 17 times here, and you're absolutely right. But you, you are not a casual mountain climber. Um, you, you, you've got a resume that goes on for quite some time. Um, and mountaineering is, at, le at, at least one level, a very technical um, activity. The way that you have to understand your gear, the way you have to understand and trust your partners. There's an awful lot of technical stuff. Involved yeah. with the kind of mountaineering that you do, all to achieve a moment of you know transcendence or beauty or, or, or stuff like that. Talk to me a little bit about the kind of mountaineering that that you do. I'm the very classical mountaineer. This means that I what I like best are combined routes where you have glaciers and some icy slopes or snow slopes and then maybe a beautiful ridge to climb. So usually 
it's in Switzerland, it's between 3,000, 4,000, 4,500 meters altitude. And it can be very strenuous. It can take very long. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, yes, it's, it's the, basically the mountaineering that maybe you also know from films with people using ropes and harnesses and carabiners, uh, helmets, crampons, mm -hmm. ice axes. That's, that's the thing which I, I love doing. Mm -hmm. and, and the payoff is just that moment of beauty? Well, it's not just one moment. It can be 10 hours of beauty when you're when you start at 3 a.m. in a clear night sky and there's no artificial lights and then you you have sunrise and then you have time with your friends and then you reach the summit and it it's just the whole experience that that makes it so beautiful. Mm -hmm. And when I was 20 something years old, I put I remember it was a It was a poster with a quote on it, and it said, it's through our efforts that we prepare ourselves to receive grace. Oh, I love that. Back then, I had to Google what is grace in English. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> like the quote. So I think that's something um, which really resonates with me. That um, I also, I firmly believe that the more you invest into something, the more the greater the reward is it's the mm -hmm. same in mountaineering and photography and anything well I, that's a wonderful transition then so okay you, you've discovered the mountains you, you've become a mountaineer if i'm not mistaken you got your college degree in sociology though right yes yes so so where do, where does the camera come into your life <laughs> the camera came in very early when i was oh, okay. a kid Yeah, well, I was fascinated by this magic box that has buttons on it and then pictures come out. And it was very early, maybe I was five or six years old when I, I wanted a camera and I actually received a small one, like a compact camera with film, of course. And that's when when it started. And But for me, it was always a hobby. It was something that I didn't consider to be a profession because I, I remember that I talked about this being that I would like to be a photographer, but in my family, people didn't really know what photographers did. So they were yeah. kind of cautious in um, supporting me in that. <laughs> When it really came into, into my life, into my professional life was also, this was connected to mountaineering because I always had a camera with me from the first day on. And I took pictures and I was, I slowly started to work as a journalist uh, during my studies. And suddenly I realized that, hey, I love photography. So I could also tell them, the editors, that I have pictures. Would you like them? <laughs> mm -hmm. So so you, you were writing first as, as a journalist? Uh, first I was writing mm -hmm. for maybe a year or so. But then I I, I um, quickly realized that there there's another part that could be very helpful for for this uh, kind of work I did back then. You, you, I mean, Leica has has you know uh, partnered with you for a lot of this mountaineering stuff, and mm -hmm. you know the the launch portfolio for the M11 included a bunch of your work. I've tried photographing in the mountains. I've tried telephoto lenses. I've tried wide-angle lenses. I've, I've tried everything I can imagine. And I have yet to come up 
with a mountain photograph that is anything more than adequate. For some reason, and, and it may just be my eye, it may just be the way I'm imagining uh, how to capture that landscape, I cannot come up with anything that has nearly the resonance uh, of your work or, you know, or the work of other people who've done just spectacular mountain stuff. What is, what is the challenge you know, both both technically and aesthetic. You know, both technically and and, and you know, artistic, of mm-hmm. of shooting in the mountains. Technically, the biggest challenge is weight, because in my the way I work, uh, I call it kind of embedded photography, <laughs> because it's I'm not taking the helicopter somewhere. I just do a mountaineering tour as I would do it otherwise, uh-huh. and I have my camera with me, so weight is crucial. This means that I always had to minimize my my equipment to a minimum. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's this uh, what what also came into play with, especially with the M cameras, that I want maximum quality with minimum equipment. So that's a big challenge. You cannot put another three kilos in your in your backpack if you go for a mountaineering tour for. 16, 17, 18 hours, you will just mm-hmm. be too slow. Then there's technical problems with cold, of course. You need really good um, batteries. You need backup batteries and stuff because um, uh, some batteries really don't like the cold. And then artistically, uh, the, the good thing is that when you're mountaineering, you're naturally up and awake during the time of sunrise maybe also sunset but then maybe you're in trouble because you should get back to the hut <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah um, sundown is not a happy time for a lot of mountaineers <laughs> no not necessarily <laughs> but um this means that you're out there somewhere where normally other people don't go during a time of the day when you have the most beautiful lights mm-hmm. um so this this makes it in a way maybe easier to, to get really, really fantastic shots. On the other hand, you're always very dependent on, on the weather, mm-hmm. which can be very annoying if you, especially if it's not a private mountaineering tour, but the shooting for a client, uh, this can, can be very, um, very difficult to pick the right day with the right conditions, with the right weather. Yes. So that's basically what I, the biggest struggle we have. <laughs> yeah, but you know, I, I, I'm looking at your images, each of which is is just completely brilliant, and I, I'm the technical mastery there. I'm, I'm going to just go back to technical for the art, artistic for a second. With all that snow, with all that sky, you've still got really crisp everything. Um, you know, not only the colors, but the snow, the rock that's visible. Um, I, I have yet to be in, in, in the, in camera or in post-production, I have yet to be able to achieve the, the kind of, um, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, uh, presence that your images carry. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Scott. That's very, <laughs> very nice what you're saying about my pictures. <laughs> <laughs> well, one thing is that you really have to have absolute routine with everything technical that your camera offers. So like sometimes to me, it feels like my camera is part of my body. I like opening the aperture or closing it, changing the ISO, just basically naturally knowing what settings you need for this shot to work has to be 
on a level that you don't even think about anymore. Yeah. Otherwise, you're too absorbed in with everything else because at the same time you're putting on your crampons and blah blah blah, and your friend wants to hurry up and and you want to take pictures and all that stuff. <clears throat> and the other, maybe one thing that I think is really important and often gets forget forgotten is that um, I think to get very authentic, very emotional pictures, you really have to be in that emotion. So when I take these pictures, I'm not the photographer standing next to the scene, looking at it with the outside view. I'm completely emerged into it. I have the same feelings, the same emotions. The, I feel the same exhaustion. I do the same thing. And at the same time, I, I take these pictures. So that's something I love doing. Also in, in lower altitudes, I, I have this um, project right now where I, I photograph people who take the cows to the Alps in summer. And I love this moment when you're, I'm scared of cows, but I love to be, it's <laughs> difficult for us to I'm seriously scared of cows, but I love the moment when the farmers go inside the the barn and they milk the cows and I would just stand in the middle or sit on the floor in the middle of 25 cows. Oh my. So it's this, this immersion, this, um, yeah, completely being involved into the situation, which I think gives a very, very direct and very, um, lively style of photography. Well, let me ask about a couple of specific images here. And, and I want to make a distinction in, in some of your images. There are the images that have people in them, and there are mm-hmm. the images that don't. And, and, mm-hmm. and we're, I'm talking, you know, not, not about the fine art stuff and not about, you know, some of the other projects, but the mountain, we'll stay with the mountaineering for a second. For the images that don't have people in them, you've got a couple images that are just really this deep, profound blue theme going through them. How do, how do you find that emotion? How, how do you look at the landscape um, when you, you haven't got the face of somebody else to convey that emotion? How do you let a rock do that? I let myself being touched by the landscape. Mm-hmm. I think it's this thing, I believe, that when something touches you or inspires you, and you take a picture of it, you can somehow see this in the picture, in the image. I love to be silent, for example. I I love to just sit somewhere and and watch and mm, be stunned at the beauty of our planet. So hopefully I think or I hope that uh, people can feel this. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes. In, in the launch portfolio for the M11, um, there's one image, and, and I didn't warn you we were going to talk about this one, so you know it, it doesn't matter if it's not you know right up front. Um, but it's it's one of the deep blue images. It's not the one that has a couple people sort of vaguely you know apparent. But it, it, it's a one where it's it's a lake. There, it's either or a fjord. You know, looks like it's going around a bend. There's sort of a a, a reflected V shape. Mm-hmm, um, Okay, tell me, I mean, this is an image I would love to have at about, you know, a mile by a mile hanging, you know, in my backyard. Tell me the story of this image. Mm -hmm. This image is a very good example of, of, of that these kind of images, they don't happen by accident. There's a lot of thinking about it beforehand. 
because when you have not studio lights, but just the natural light, um, you're completely dependent on that. So Mm -hmm. what I do in that case of this image, the night before I checked what time sunrise will be, I think it was around, it was maybe mm, 5.45 in the morning. So I know that the beautiful light will not be at sunrise because then you're too late. So I try to be there one hour early, which would be then 4.45. And I just calculated how long I will walk from the hut to this beautiful lake which was one and a half hours. So then you calculate backwards and you know, okay, I have to get up at three and then start walking at 3.30 and then I will make it to the lake one hour before sunrise and then you sit there and you wait. Now, so you had had been in that exact spot before and you you looked at it and you said, I'm going to come back here when the light is different. I hadn't been there before. I had been above it. Okay. um, on in winter by ski touring and i i had the idea that this lake must be really beautiful in summer mm-hmm. <laughs> i think you were right uh, <laughs> <laughs> tell me again so many projects here and folks you got to go to caroline's website because the photography projects the film projects all of these things there, there's no way we could talk about these without spending 16 hours here but t- tell me about 82 Bold Statements. 82 Bold Statements, yes. This was a project that was not uh, organized by me. This this was a project last year organized by Swiss Tourism. And they contracted me as a photographer uh, mm-hmm. because they needed um, mountaineering photographers. And it was a project where they... Because women are still a tiny minority in mountaineering, even more than in photography or in filmmaking. Mm-hmm. And um, Swiss Tourism, they organized an event that lasted for three days and they had 82 women from 25 countries who would climb a 4,000 meter peak with mountain guides, female mountain guides, mm-hmm. and formed the longest rope team ever um, recorded or ever uh, organized in the world. Isn't 82 people on the same rope a bad idea? Um, we split it in the end and maybe I think it was always 10 people on one rope something like this. So then they were just walking behind each other. And the beautiful thing was that there were people from women from Thailand, from India, from everywhere. People who had women who had never seen snow, who had (laughs) never seen crampons. And it was such a beautiful project of enabling someone, empowering someone of achieving something they would have never dreamed of in their wildest dreams. Um, so it was really beautiful to be a photographer. And I wasn't even prepared for that. I thought it's just a nice project. But then on the summit, it was so emotional. I would say, as a, you know, one of the questions you ask everybody in, in, in you know, their first journalism class is, okay, that's a great situation. What's the story? So you've got a great situation here. How did you go about finding the story of that day? The story was... I was really contracted there. So it wasn't my job to find the story. The story was given. The story was this, this mad (laughs) 
challenge of doing this. And, and my job was to, to be capable of doing like being faster than the others and passing others and going to the back and to the front and so on and so on. Mm -hmm. And we were three photographers in total because it was so overwhelming. So, um, it was just the job in, in, in that, um, for that job was to really catch these emotional moments. Yeah. And we were taking pictures and filming at the same time, which, which is always driving you crazy. So <laughs> it was a crazy day being in 4,000 meters altitude, taking pictures, doing small interviews, um, with people who needed something for their own Insta account filming. And I think we all were breathing in in the morning and breathing out at 10 a.m. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, I'm looking at the images now and, and where I was going is I mean, the situation is, is, you know, the one that you were given. I think you found the emotional story of all of these women. And so the story really becomes, you know, their hearts and souls more than, gee, I'm marching on the snow today. Yeah, uh, yeah. And, and that is not easy to discover. There, there's a lot of people that get into, you know, a good situation and can't find a story. You know, all, all they've got is, is the stuff that was given to them. Yeah, I, I was, I think it's the same thing that, that magic that happens when you let yourself being touched by something. And I was glad I could hide behind the camera in that moment during these maybe 45 minutes on the summit, because I was crying sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> it was so emotional when yeah. this, this lady, this girl from India, she, she dedicated this summit to her mother. And it was just incredible. We had American and Iranian women standing on the summit at the same time. So seriously, I was, I was overwhelmed myself and I just kept on working. So I think that's what shows. So I think you have to, you need an open heart yourself to, to transform this into pictures. Otherwise it doesn't work. Let's take just a quick break. We hope very much that you are enjoying today's episode. The very fact that you are listening to this podcast suggests that photography means a lot to you. And if that's the case, you might want to have a look at Frames, quarterly printed photography magazine. We truly believe that excellent photography belongs on paper. Visit readframes.com to find out more about our publication. And now, back to today's conversation. Carolyn, I, I was looking at your website, and I'm going through the projects, and I come to the one called Silence. Mm -hmm. And I click on it, and mm -hmm. it starts to load, and I sit here thinking, come on, come on, it's, it's going to load. And then I realize it is. This, this, <laughs> it, it, <laughs> and, 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 you know, all of a sudden, the title made sense, and I thought, oh, what a cool thing. Tell me about the, this series. Tell me about this project. Mm-hmm. It was a project that evolved about 10 years ago. And when it started, it was not something that I thought as a project. I just, I love taking pictures in which you basically see nothing. And I think when I started questioning myself why I did this, it was some sort of a rebel act. Um, because in, in, 
in in the area of mountaineering photography, there's a lot of, you know, the steeper, the better, the louder, uh, the crazier, the faster, the higher, the better. Right. And that's something that that's not me. I'm not saying that it's you know good. It's it can be very fascinating, but it's not me. So I had this kind of rebel project where I said, you know what? I take pictures of snow. <laughs> <laughs> And fog. And that's how it started. And then it evolved into this project where I tried to catch the feeling of silence, the feeling of being very, very content, maybe even in some sort of meditative state. I tried to transform this into visuals. Mm -hmm. So that's how silence um how silence evolved and became a project and a book and different expositions. Yes. Well, it, it's remarkable because, you know, when I clicked on it, all my expectations were the normal expectations. Um, and, on the, and as I waited for the first one, I thought, you know, wasn't done loading it. Then I realized, no, Scott, she's asking you to look at this completely differently. Um, and then I had to smile and think, oh, this is so cool. So it, it, I love the fact that it completely reorients expectations of the viewer um, so you can get at more deeply, you know, the, the idea of silence that, that you're going for. Tell me a little bit about Faraway Lands. Far, faraway Lands, that's, um, it contains my passion for travel. Right. And I started traveling a lot also during my studies. Then I kind of started forgetting it to travel privately because I was traveling a lot for my work. But this is really, or you can see these moments there where I'm in different countries and I'm just happy mm-hmm. <laughs> and discovering the world and seeing the world with, with the eye of a child that is stunned by things and that is amazed by, by different people, different scents and atmospheres and places and I still think that as human beings, we learn a lot with, with traveling, with really getting involved with other people and cultures. And even though nowadays with the whole CO2 footprint thing, it gets more complicated, but I think it still pays off to, to go to faraway lands, to, to see a different place and a different perspective of the world. There is uh, one image in there that, you know, is is not the most colorful. It's it's not the most uh, dramatic in terms of what's going on. But for some reason, when I saw it, I thought, "Oh man, I, I wish I was there." Um, and that's the three people sitting at a small table out in the middle of nowhere. There's a fourth chair yeah. that's empty. I assume that's the one you were in just a few minutes uh, <laughs> b- before that. I, I can just see you looking and say, "Hang on a second, I got to take a picture." You know, go run you know thirty feet away. Uh, but tell me where this is. Tell me what's going on there because it's it's the kind of picture picture that I think viewers can imagine themselves in. Mm-hmm. That's in Iran. I traveled to Iran several times because I had a picture and exposition project uh, with Iranian mountaineers and Iranian mountains. Mm-hmm. And um, 
I spent a lot of time in, in the Iranian mountains north of Tehran and near Isfahan. But then I thought, okay, if you're in Iran, this country has beautiful deserts. So I booked a guided tour, a small private guided tour to look at the desert. And um, that's where we were. <laughs> and um, basically, we, we drove through this salt desert. And then the tour guide said, so it's time for lunch. And uh, I was quite surprised when he popped up a table and chairs and <laughs> food in the middle of nowhere. Mm -hmm. And it was this kind of surreal Mars moon landscape and having lunch there, <laughs> which, uh, which I really liked. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's. I wish I'd been there at that table. That 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 strikes me as one of those moments you remember forever. Yeah, Caroline, you you are also a filmmaker, so your yes. your work goes well beyond uh, still images. Uh, mm -hmm. Is it an easy transition from one to the other? Yes, I find it quite natural to transit to transition from one to the other, and what I think is that photography makes you a better camera woman and filming with your camera makes you a better photographer. So um, for me, it was very natural that once our cameras had this record button to make moving, record mm -hmm. moving images, that's why how I started filming. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I can understand how considerations of light or composition, you know, or, or you know, contrast, those kind of things would be the same. Is the storytelling the same? I mean, when you've got one image versus 25 minutes, do the rules change? Mm, yes, you have to do a lot more planning and thinking. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yes, um, because when editing film, you, you definitely need some different perspectives. You need different angles. You need, you cannot do jump cuts all the time and you, you you have to know what you need in the end and based on what you need in the end and what you want to do in the end, this really has to influence you during the filming. Mm -hmm. And in photography, I, I think what I enjoy when I film for a while and then I go back to photography, it feels like incredible freedom because I can just take pictures how I want, however I want. And I don't have to think about the montage and the editing and and to think about all this, like how, how we're going to process this material. That is absolutely fascinating because I was going to ask you what, what role chance and, and accident and serendipity had um, in, in, in your work. And what you said just, it makes perfect sense. If you're doing a film, and you have the ability to have 17 different camera angles, you need to decide in advance which ones you're going to, and you know, maybe not use in the final cut, but at least, you know, capture some footage from. Is, yeah. is still photography more welcoming of luck? I think with still photography, there's the beauty of... How do you say this? You know, the beauty of lacking something which will not be problematic as long as you have the meaningful pictures. Mm -hmm. You can have blank spaces in between these meaningful pictures. 
And in film, you cannot have blank spaces. So for okay. me, that that's the big difference. And um, um, also one thing which is very technical, but <laughs> very simple also, when, when you take an image, your mind is absorbed for maybe the 125th of a second. But when you when you record moving images, you're glued to your camera for seconds and minutes. So it takes a lot more concentration to film. You you list yourself as director of your films, but you are also cinematographer and editor and everything else? I I did direct some of my documentaries, but my heart is beating for the the camera work. Okay. And the editing, I'm I'm happy when someone can do this who's better than me. <laughs> I know as, as, as long as they share your vision, though, right? <laughs> yeah, someone who shares my vision but is definitely better than me. <laughs> oh boy, tell me about and, and I can't even begin to pronounce it. Um, but of Ice and Men, of Ice and Men, that was my first real film project. I. Back then I was, because I realized that, oh my God, you can be like a self-taught photographer, mm-hmm. but you can never be a self-taught filmmaker because it's just too big. This thing is overwhelming. So I did a, a one-year training, um, a one-year part-time training for documentary filmmaking. And this was my final project. And that's okay. how it started. And I, um, I remember that I, I was back to the landscapes. And I told my producer that I want to portray this glacier. And that's when I learned that glaciers don't talk and don't do anything. And that's difficult for filmmaking. (laughs) 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 He encouraged me to find protagonists and people who can talk about this glacier and move on this glacier. And that's Mm -hmm. what we did. We still told the story of the glacier. Oh, I, I, you know, I, I've, even though th- th- this movie does have protagonists, do you remember the movie March of the Penguins? Yes, of course. Well, I'd, I would love to have been in the planning meeting or, or the, the pitch meeting where someone says, hey, I want to make a movie. And, and the producer the, or the money people say, okay, what's it about? It's about penguins and they're going to walk around for three hours. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, okay. Oh, and nope. And they're going to walk to the left. They're going to walk to the right. Um, it's a brilliant movie, but you can't explain it unless you've seen it. Yeah. Definitely. <laughs> okay, so fast forward a little bit. Tell, tell me the difference technically in, in terms of your expertise and tell me the difference in story between that movie and then this other kind of silence. Well, the difference is that this other kind of silence is completely experimental. It was a project that evolved during the pandemic when I felt very confined, constricted, and very lonely. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, it, was, it was my first project that, that was very, very personal. It was not about a glacier or about other protagonists. It was about my feeling. And I, it was an inner urge to, to express what, what I felt at this moment. And also an urge to go outside and leave the city. Mm-hmm. And it was, this was actually a film that was made without a lot of planning because I went there and I saw this fantastic landscape of this dried out lake, which seemed very surreal. 
and I just started filming and I flew my drone and started filming. And then I asked a friend if he could take some shots of myself. Um, so he did a lot of camera work then. And suddenly I became a protagonist. And um, for this project, I didn't find anyone who would cut it. So I had to do it myself. <laughs> <laughs> did a fine um, job. Yeah. But um, yes, I think it's uh, it's a small project, but it's a very personal project, and I wanted to 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 remember this this moment of awkwardness when we slipped into the first lockdown. Because in Switzerland, we were told that we're not supposed to go to the mountains and not supposed to go mountaineering because you can get hurt, and then you need an emergency room bed and there's no okay, space. Okay. So we didn't go mountaineering, which was really hard for me. Just out of curiosity, what was your last mountaineering trip? Where'd you go? My last mountaineering trip was this Easter. And I went to, to a pass, which is called Simplon in the South of Switzerland. And we did some very cool mixed climbing kind of technical adventurous stuff where no one else is because it's not the highest mountain, not the most famous, but, um, an interesting one. <laughs> Do you prefer the technical stuff? I like technical stuff. Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. By the way, just to make you jealous, the highest point in North Dakota, which is where I live, guess how tall it is. Who North Dakota, I see prairies and flats. So I don't know, 800 meters. The, oh, the highest point is 3,500 feet above sea level. <laughs> 3,000 feet. How much would that? That's about, well, that's about 800, 2,000 meters, right? Uh, it's, let's put it this way. It's really easy. <laughs> it's really easy. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Kelly, what are you working on now? Um, right now I'm working on a small video for a launch of a new Leica camera. Ooh. <laughs> Do we know about this one yet? Probably not. And I'm not supposed to tell and I'm not going to tell, of course. <laughs> well, of course, the internet is now going to explode with rumors. Um, <laughs> say, wait, there, there's a new one coming. We don't know what it is. <laughs> you will know in three weeks. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, that, 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 this will not be out that fast. So it'll be old news by then. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> but Caroline, I, like I said at the beginning, I'm completely jealous of your work. I still don't understand how to sit anywhere in the mountains and compose um, or capture an image that has the resonance and the power that yours, that yours does. I, I am deeply impressed with the work. And thank you very much. This has been a fantastic conversation. Thank you, Scott. It has been really nice talking to you. Frames. Because excellent photography belongs on paper. Visit us at www.readframes.com.